You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Whitefields. We're so glad that you're here with us this morning. We are in a study through the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews. So if you have your Bibles with you, would you please open them to the New Testament book of the letter to the Hebrews, and we're going to continue our study there. Our series is called An Anchor for the Soul. And this letter to the Hebrews, this is actually, it's one of my favorite books of the Bible. I'm really excited to be studying it with you here on Sunday mornings because what it says is so incredibly powerful. This is so incredibly important for us to stand, uh, to understand. And the message of each and every chapter is who Jesus is, what he has done, and how the knowledge of that and understanding of that transforms every aspect of our lives. And so that's what we're going to continue studying this morning as we continue this study. We are in chapter 2, so if you'd please read along with me. We're going to begin reading Letter to the Hebrews, chapter 2, starting in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with honor and glory, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Yet at present we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we do see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and, I and the children God has given me. Therefore, Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not to angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that it is so relevant to our lives, that it speaks to us. And this morning we ask that you would open up our ears, open up our minds and our hearts, Lord, that we might receive your word, that we might understand it, And Lord, that we might act upon it. So Lord, we pray that you would speak to us during this time and let us have ears to hear and hearts to receive. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So throughout human history, there have always been wars. But the way that wars have been fought has changed over time and in different cultures and different places. So nowadays, you know, we fight wars from from far away. We have missiles and rockets and airstrikes and drones. But not that long ago, wars were fought in trenches. Before that, you know, there were these times when armies would just walk at each other in lines with muskets and shoot at each other, which sounds terrible, right? But even before that, wars were fought in hand-to-hand combat, just melee warfare. Back in ancient times, 
one of the ways that battles were fought was through something called representative warfare. So representative warfare, representative combat. And the idea behind this was because this melee battle, right, this hand-to-hand combat with sticks and sharp things, uh, it was very brutal, it was violent, and it resulted in so many injuries and deaths on both sides that they came up with an idea to mitigate some of that, and that was that they would do this thing called representative warfare. So what would happen is they would choose a representative from each side. Each side would choose their greatest warrior, and then the other side would choose their warrior, and they would call these warriors the champion of the people. And these two champions would go and they would fight each other, mano y mano, man on man, one on one. And whoever was victorious, their side would be credited with the victory and the other side would concede defeat. And we actually have a picture of this practice in the Bible. It's the story which you might be familiar with, is the story of David and Goliath found in 1 Samuel chapter 17. The Israelites were at war with the Philistines and things were not looking good for the Israelites. The Philistines kind of had them on their heels. The Philistine army was stronger, it was bigger, they were better equipped, and the Philistines were advancing, they were taking ground. And at one point, the two armies met at this valley called the Valley of Elah. In this valley, so it's a deep valley with mountains on both sides, and so the Israelites were encamped on the one side, on on these hills, and in between them was the valley, and the Philistines were encamped on the other side, and neither of them was willing to make the first move, because whoever makes the first move, whether they go down into the valley or whether they try to run up the hill to attack the other side, they're going to be at a huge disadvantage. They're going to suffer a lot of loss of life. So they're at a standoff. Neither of them wants to make the first move. And this standoff lasted for a long time. It seems that it lasted for over a month with these two armies camped out, you know, staring at each other across this valley. And so in order to resolve this conflict, the Philistine army suggested that they resort to this practice of representative warfare. We actually see that right there in 1 Samuel, that the Philistines sent out their champion. It even calls him that. They sent out their champion, a man named Goliath of Gath. And so this champion, Goliath, he goes out there and he tells the Israelites to send down their champion, right? And that's what it says there in verses 8 and 9. Goliath says to them, choose a man for yourselves. Let him come down to me. And if he's able to fight and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail and kill him, then you shall be our servants and you shall serve us. But the Israelites had a problem. The problem was they didn't have a champion. They didn't have somebody who could fight for them and represent them and fight on their side. There was no one who stood a chance against a warrior like Goliath, this great massive man, this this one who it seemed was invincible. His size, his skill, his armor, and his weapons, it was like, we don't even stand a chance. It was a hopeless situation. They have no one to go on their behalf and fight this battle. And it wasn't until a young shepherd boy who, for his entire life, had been overlooked by everybody. He showed up to to deliver lunch, actually. That's how it happened. This boy, his name was David. And not only was he willing to fight Goliath, but the interesting thing about David is that even though he had been overlooked his entire life and even in this battle, he was the one who was uniquely skilled to actually win this battle. You see, because from childhood, he had learned how to use a sling. And he had gotten pretty good at it because he had been working as a shepherd. He had to fight off bears and lions. And he'd actually gotten really good at using this sling. You see, Goliath had come with a spear, with a sword, but David showed up with a sling. And nobody realized it at first, but that was essentially kind of like showing up to a knife fight with a gun. And so here's Goliath, and he sees David coming, no armor, 
it was just some rocks in his hand and this piece, this strap of leather, and he scoffs at him and he says, what kind of champion are you? You're the very picture of weakness and vulnerability and humility. And he didn't take him seriously. In fact, nobody took him seriously. Everyone still was overlooking him. He didn't look like any champion that they had ever seen before. From all outward appearances, Goliath exuded power and might and force, and David was just the opposite. Humility, weakness, vulnerability. But it didn't take very long before people realized that it was actually David who had the advantage because David had showed up to a knife fight with a gun, and he literally shot Goliath in the head and killed him. And see, because of how representative warfare worked, David's victory over Goliath was the victory of all the people over all those other people. It was his side over the other side. See, the thing, though, is that none of those people in the Israelite army, other than David, none of them even lifted a finger. Not a single one of them. None of them had risked their lives. David had done everything. He had done it all. And yet they got to share in the victory. And years later, there was another man. He was known as the son of David. He was a descendant of that boy who had become the champion of the people who had later become their king. And he also came in a way that from all outward appearances seemed confusing. It seemed like weakness and vulnerability. It seemed like humility. And you wonder, well, what kind of champion is this? This isn't the kind of champion that we would have ever imagined. And yet he came and he defeated an even greater enemy, an enemy which we were absolutely helpless to fight against. And because of his victory, because he was our champion, we get to be victorious. We get to be free. His name was Jesus, and he is our champion. That's the title of today's message, by the way. Jesus, our champion. The book of Hebrews was written to Christians who were discouraged. They were struggling with discouragement. Maybe there's some of you who can relate to that yourselves. Maybe some of you struggle with discouragement sometimes. Maybe you struggle with fear. That's what these people were dealing with. They were asking a question which many of us ask even this day, which is, if God loves me so much, then why is there so much difficulty in my life? If God cares so much about me, then why are things so hard? Why is my life full of troubles if God cares about me? And the answer that this question gives in each and every chapter is that the cure for discouragement, the cure for fear, the only true cure is to look to Jesus, is to fix your eyes upon him and focus in on who he is and really let it sink in your mind and get down to your heart what he has done and what that means for you because it's only in him that you will find hope which will be an anchor for your soul, the cure for fear and worry and anxiety and discouragement. Here in chapter 2, the writer tells us that Jesus is our champion. He is the one who has gone in our place and fought the great battle for us. But there are several aspects of this idea of Jesus being our champion, which the writer shows us here in chapter 2. So let's look at them. First of all, Jesus is our king who has come to us. Secondly, he is our brother who is proud of us. And thirdly, he is our priest who helps us. So our king who's come to us, our brother who is proud of us, and our priest who helps us. Let's look at the first of those. Jesus is our king who has come to us. Now remember in the scope of this book, one of the benefits of studying the way that we do where we go through verse by verse and chapter by chapter is that we get the whole picture of the book rather than just grabbing pieces out of it. So we looked at chapter one over the last two weeks, and the theme of chapter one was that Jesus is, is like no one else. There's no one you can compare him to. You see, Jesus is not just another religious figure. He's not just another great thinker who lived at one time and then died. Jesus is actually, we're told there in the first chapter of Hebrews, he's actually God. 
And therefore, you can't put him on the shelf with other historical figures. You can't put him in the same category as other religious leaders. Jesus is actually God Most High. He holds the universe together, it says, by the power of his word. He created all things. There is no one who compares to him. There is none who is greater than him because he, Jesus, is God Most High. And then now in chapter 2, though, having established that idea that Jesus is God Most High, now the author changes gears and he says, but wait, there's actually more. Not only is Jesus God Most High, but he is not the kind of God you know, like the Greek or Roman gods or these other gods who are detached way up there, somewhere far away. They, just, they don't care. They're not involved. Not at all. We don't have an afar-off God. No, we have a God who has heard our cries and he has come down to us. He became one of us. And not just at risk to his life, but at the cost of his life. And that's what this chapter really is about. It's about Jesus, how God became man, took on human flesh, and what Jesus accomplished in his humanity. So in verses 5 to 15, the writer shows us what Jesus has done for us as our champion, as our king who has come to us. And there are three stages to this, which, which we're going to look at quickly. Three stages kind of to this argument that the writer builds. The first is this. He says, here's what we were made to be. Then he says, but here's what's gone wrong. And he says, okay, but here's what God has done about it. So what we were made to be, what has gone wrong, and what God has done about it. To answer the question of who we were made to be, the writer takes us to Psalm 8. That's what we have there, starting in verse 6 to 8. That's a quotation from Psalm 8. And in Psalm 8, the psalmist says, this is what human beings were created for. This was the vision with God in his creation of the world. It says that he made them a little lower than the angels, but he crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under our feet. What that means is that when God created the world, he didn't entrust it to the care of angels. He entrusted it to our care. He gave us a, a sacred trust and a sacred responsibility to subdue the earth, to administer and manage this planet that he's given us, to cultivate it, to nourish it, to organize it, to establish societies where there's justice and peace and prosperity and unity and safety. See, God made us, it says, for glory and honor and to have dominion over the world, but then it says... But that's not the way it is. In other words, this is what God called us to do, but, but we blew it. You see, verse 8 is kind of the understatement of the year, right? It says, at present, we do not see all things in subjection to him. At present, this is how it's supposed to be, but we don't see that things are the way that they're supposed to be. At present, we do not see things in subjection to him. You see, we look out at the world and we don't see a world that is orderly. We don't see a world that is you know, nicely kept. We see a world that is out of control. We see a world that is in chaos. We see a world that's breaking down. Hurricanes and floods. We see violence and wars. We see accidents and tragedies. There's poverty and suffering. And we look at these things, and even though that's the way it is, we innately feel that, okay, maybe that's how it is, but that's not the way it should be. It's not right. It's not the way it's supposed to be. You see, the biggest problem, even, even beyond all of those other things, our biggest problem and the world's biggest problem, it tells us in verse 14, 15, is death and the fear of death. So what went wrong? Let's look at that before we move on. The answer is found all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. See, we were, we were given this sacred trust. God created the world. He entrusted it to us, called us to subdue it and manage it and administer it, cultivate it, create societies of peace and justice. And 
Yet we blew it. And how did we blow it? Well, we rebelled against God. That's where it began. We wanted to be our own lords and masters, but the irony is we couldn't even master ourselves. And so in in seeking to, rather than honor God and submit to Him as our Lord and Master, we sought to be our own lords and master, and we, we brought a curse upon ourselves, the curse of sin, the result of which is death. You see, and it's not just us who are affected by this curse. The Bible tells us that all of creation groans under the curse, longing for its day of redemption. In other words, nothing in this world is the way it should be. Nothing is how it ought to be. Nothing is the way that it was meant to be. Nature is broken. And I want to be clear and say this. There is very much good in this world, but the good that is in this world is tainted. It's imperfect. But see, the ultimate curse of sin is death. You know, it's really interesting how when you talk about death, people really don't like to talk about it, right? Like even, even in church, like people are like, ah, it's a, it's a bit, bit of a downer here, huh? But it's interesting that we don't like to talk about death. But you see, the thing about death is that if you're alive, I mean, it's, it's kind of the one thing that we all have in common, isn't it, right? We cringe whenever we hear about someone passing away, even if we didn't know that person personally. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to think about it. And yet it's such a fundamental part of our existence here on earth. From the day a child is born, there's all this joy and light and happiness, and yet there's this dark cloud looming on the horizon, this guarantee that one day death will come. Every one of us will die. And it's not a question of if we will die. It's a question of when. And we know that, and yet we always seem surprised by it. We always seem like it's a surprise, and yet it it shouldn't really be, but yet it always is. You know, as a pastor, I've officiated a lot of funerals, and I'll tell you this, whenever someone dies, even if they were very sick or, or very old, everybody seems just so shocked by it. Like, I can't believe this actually happened. And yet, in a way, death is the one thing we shouldn't be surprised by, and yet we are, because we cannot shake, no matter how hard we try, we cannot shake this nagging feeling that there's something fundamentally wrong with it. There's something fundamentally unnatural about it. It's foreign. It's a thief. It's an intruder, that it's not right, that it's not fair, that it shouldn't be this way. And the reason we feel that way, the Bible would tell us, the Bible would tell us that's an absolutely correct feeling. Because we weren't made for that. We weren't made for death. We were made for glory and honor and light and life. But instead, we experience frustration and shame and ultimately death. And it says there in verse 15 that we live all of our lives in bondage to the fear of death. We live in bondage to the fear of death. If that's not a perfect description for our society, I don't know what is. Our society lives and exists in bondage to the fear of death. It's interesting that all uh, major writers and thinkers and philosophers have addressed this topic. And, And the topic is really this, that they've all come to this conclusion that we as human beings, we know that death is coming, and yet we are so afraid, so terribly afraid of death that we do everything we can not to think about it. We keep ourselves busy. We pretend like it's never going to happen. We we try not to think about it. We suppress those thoughts, and we try to live our lives as if it's not ever going to happen. But here's the thing, though, and and here's the reason why we do that. Because if we would really think about it, if we'd really take a minute and stop from all our busyness and all our work that keeps us busy so that we don't have to think about it, and we would take a step back and we'd really look at things, and we'd say, you know what, if this life 
is all there is, and there's nothing after this, and death is the end, then that means that everything that we are doing is completely meaningless. Everything that you stress out over, everything that you do throughout your week and toil over and run here and there, if this life is all there is and there's nothing after this, it's just a gigantic waste of time. It's, it's almost like as if life is a stationary bicycle. And each generation climbs up on that stationary bicycle and they get on and they pedal and they pedal as hard as they can and they sweat and they work and they toil and they keep themselves busy and they get super stressed and they they work and work and work until they get tired and they fall off and they die. And then the next generation gets on and they pedal and pedal and pedal and pedal and they sweat and toil and toil and yet we're never getting anywhere because it's a stationary bicycle. But yet we're doing all this toiling and all this pedaling and the next generation gets on and so on and so on ad infinitum. It's a stationary bike. All this effort, all this energy we're exerting, it really means nothing, and we're not actually getting anywhere if this life is all there is. And if you really take a moment to look at it like this, you would have to admit that everything, even our entire lives, is completely pointless. It's completely meaningless, and yet no one wants to do that. We're so desperately afraid of admitting this fact That if this life is all there is and then death is the end, that nothing matters because we desperately want to believe that what we do makes a difference and has a purpose and yet there is this nagging feeling that we cannot shake that if we stop for a minute and take a step back and really look at it, we have to admit that everything we do, everything we work for, if death is the end and death is coming for all of us, that it's all absolutely pointless. That's what the writer writer of Ecclesiastes, that was his exact point. I look at life... I take a step back and I realize all this stuff I'm doing is just chasing after the wind. And yet we're so terrified of admitting that. And so we just keep ourselves busy so we won't have to think about it. And if anybody says, well, wait a second, we say, no, 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 I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to talk about that. We don't want to think about it. The entire human race is in bondage to the fear of death. And that's why we work so hard. That's why we try so hard. That's why we do so much so that we won't have to think about it. So that's the bad news, but let me tell you what God has done about it. Here's the good news. We look out at the world, we see that things are not the way they should be. We see that death is an inevitability. And then we look at ourselves and we see we're not even what we should be. And here's the hope that we have. It says in verse 9, we look and we see the world, we see that it's not what it should be. But verse 9, but we see Jesus. But we see him. We look at this world and we see so many things. We look at ourselves we see that we're not even what we should be. But we see him. We see Jesus who for a little while was made lower than the angels so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. See what the writer's doing. He's going back to that psalm that we read earlier and now he's reading it through Jesus. You see, he's putting Jesus in that place. He's saying, Jesus, though he is God most high, Yet he was made a little lower than the angels. He became one of us. He added humanity to his deity. He never ceased to be God. But Jesus was fully human and fully God at the same time. He added humanity to his deity. See, the message of the gospel is that God is not just a distant, far-off, emotionally detached God. Rather, he is a God who has heard our cries, he has seen our hopeless plight, and he has come down to us in order to save us. And verse 14 says that because we are flesh and blood human beings, that God became a flesh and blood human being. This is what we call, in theological words, we call this the incarnation. That God became a man. Why? It tells us there. So that he, by his own death, 
could destroy the power of death and set us free. He did it by dying. Verse 10 says how he did that. It says that Jesus is the archigos of our salvation. That word, for some of you, it's translated author of our salvation. For some of you, it says founder. But a lot of commentators would argue that given the context here, the best way to translate that word would actually be champion. He is our champion. As we talked about earlier, a champion is one who takes your place and fights a battle on your behalf because you are facing an opponent that is too great for you that you don't stand any chance against. There's no hope at all. And this champion, the Archegos, he comes and he puts himself between you and that foe and he fights that battle for you on your behalf. That is what Jesus has done for you. He is your champion. You were in a hopeless, helpless situation as we're looking at with death, facing an enemy that you stood no chance to fight against. And yet he came to your rescue because he loves you. God took on human flesh so that he could fight that battle on your behalf. And the way that he did it, verse 14 tells us, was by dying. Who would have thought that a champion would come in this way? Anyone, no one would have guessed that a champion would come in weakness and that he would have victory through weakness and victory through humility. And yet Jesus comes and through his death, through giving up his life, he defeated the one who holds the power of death. And he blew a hole in the prison walls of death in order to make a way for us to come through. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, our great captain has opened up a cleft in the pitiless walls of the universe and bid us come through. There's an old story that's told of a man who was born and raised in a prison, prison with no windows. He had never been outside of the prison. He had, ne- he had never seen anything but the walls of the dungeon. And this prison was full of other people who had also been born and raised in that prison. They had only seen all that they knew were the inside walls of that dungeon. And one of the debates that they used to have is they would sit around, they would debate whether there was actually anything beyond the prison, if there was anything out there, because it had no windows. None of them had ever been outside. And there was this one young man who used to say, I wonder, I wonder, maybe there is something else out there. Maybe there is something beyond the walls of this prison. And the jailers would tell him, no, no, this, don't, that's wishful thinking. That's just, uh, that's not how it is. There's nothing else out there. And the other prisoners would, would tell him, no, 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 don't, don't even think about it. There's nothing else out there. But one day someone came into their dungeon from somewhere else in the prison. And he told them, they, they sat around one day and he said, look, I didn't actually come from another part of the prison. I came from outside. I've been outside. That's where I'm from. I've been there. I know that there's another world out there. It's where I came from. I've been out there before. And this man from the outside, he began to scratch on the walls of that prison. Pictures of the outside world. He drew a tree. Then he drew the sun. And he told them what life was like on the outside. And he talked to them about colors, not the colors that they knew in the prison. They only knew browns and grays and and blacks. But he told them about green. He told them about yellow and pink. And eventually that prisoner left. And the young man, he sat around wondering, I wonder if what that man said was true. Another thing that man had told him was that on the outside there was a prince there was a prince out there and that prince had said that one day he was going to break into that prison and he was going to set the prisoners free. And so one day this man is sitting there in his cell and he hears the sound of digging on the outside of the wall and suddenly in bursts this stream of light because someone had broken a hole in the wall that was the size of a human hand. And the young man looked out through that hole 
And he saw that world outside, that world that had been depicted to him only in pictures on the walls of the prison. And he saw a tree. It was a little different than what he expected because he'd only ever seen a tree etched on a prison wall. But he saw a tree and he saw the sun and he heard the voice of the prince. And the prince told him, now you've gotten a glimpse of this world. You've gotten a glimpse of me and I want you to know that I'm preparing to come and get you. I'm going to take you out for good. But until then, live in the hope of what you've seen through the hole in the wall. And this young man, even though he continued to live in the dungeon, his life was changed. By that encounter, he began to live differently with a whole new perspective because he had gotten a glimpse of what was out there, what awaited him on the other side. And he had this promise that the prince was coming. And from that day forward, he lived in a completely different way because now he had hope. You see, that story is a picture of what it means to be a Christian. People all around you telling you, this is all there is. There's nothing else. This is it. You're born, you die. You're born, you live, you die. The end. And yet you say, no, this can't be. Everything inside of me tells me that I was made for more than this. That there must be more than this out there. And one day Jesus Christ comes into your life and he tells you, you're right. You were made for more than this. You were made for light and life eternally. And I have opened up a hole in the pitiless walls of the world. And one day I am coming back to take you. But until then, live in the hope of this glimpse of what you have seen through the wall. And that is exactly what we have in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has given us a picture of coming attractions. He, he, as he died and rose again to eternal life, through him we too will rise to eternal life. And when you see that, when you understand that, when you see Jesus crucified for your sins and then resurrected, having defeated death and taken away the power of death, it sets you free from bondage to the fear of death because you don't have to be afraid anymore. And you can live your life with a completely different perspective, knowing that for you, there is meaning, there is purpose, because death is not the end. That for you, it's like what C.S. Lewis wrote at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia in the, the book, The Last Battle. He, he writes this on the very last page. He's describing what heaven is like. And he says, and then they realized that everything that had come before, all of their life in this world and all of their adventures had only been but the cover and the title page. And now at last they were beginning the great story which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. See, this is the good news of the gospel. Your situation was so dire, but God's love for you was so great that God came down to you. He is the king who has come to you to be your champion and to fight and to win on your behalf. And because of his victory, you can be saved. Because of his victory, you can be victorious and free. Because of what he did for you, you have a hope which sets you free from the fear of death. You see, in him we have nothing to fear in life or in death, and we can live with this incredible confidence because of what he has done for us. We'll move on to these next two. These will be a lot faster. Uh, verse 11 and 12, we see that Jesus is our brother who is proud of us. He is not ashamed to call us his family, to call us brothers. You know, we live in a very individualistic society, and so in our society, the way it works is, right, if you want to get a job or if you want to recommend yourself to somebody, what you do is you give a resume, and what a resume is for us, it's a list of our personal accomplishments, all the things that we've done and accomplished and, and gotten through. But in ancient cultures and in some non-Western cultures even today, they value family 
much more than they value individual accomplishments. And so if you want to recommend yourself, if you want to get a job or do whatever you want to do, you wouldn't give someone a resume, you would give them a genealogy. But see, when you did that, you would make sure you'd leave out the black sheep in your family, right? You wouldn't talk about your uncle who, uh, you know, your, your, your weird, crazy uncle. You wouldn't talk about your cousin who's in jail. You just kind of leave them off, pretend like that never happened, and you would prominently list the family members that you were most proud of, the ones you wanted to be associated with, but you'd leave off the ones that you didn't want uh, anybody to know about because you didn't want to be associated with them. And that's why it's so interesting when we read, for example, the Gospel of Matthew, the very first page of the New Testament. The Gospel of Matthew is a book which was written to recommend Jesus to the world. And how does it begin? It begins with a genealogy. And to us, that seems kind of anticlimactic, like, wow, we're building up to Jesus. And what do we get? A genealogy to begin the, to begin the New Testament. But you've got to understand, for them, that was Jesus' credentials. That's his resume. That's how he's, this is the proof he should be received. And so what's so surprising about it in, in that same vein is this. When you actually look at the names of the people in Jesus' genealogy, first of all, the first thing that's shocking is that there are five women listed in Jesus' genealogy. You see, ancient genealogies never listed women because women were considered to be of lower status, and so they would never list women. But yet Jesus, in his genealogy, he lists women. And it's not only that, if you look at the women that he lists, you'll notice that each of them, these are the kind of people, these are the kind of stories that they have that most people would be ashamed of. They would leave off of their resume. They wouldn't want to, to admit these black sheep in their family. You have Bathsheba, she's an adulteress. Rahab, a prostitute. Tamar, she's a, a rape victim. Ruth, she's not even Jewish, so if you're going to put it on your Jewish resume, you probably don't want to list her. Mary, she's a girl who got pregnant before she was married. You see, these aren't the kind of people, these aren't the kind of stories that most people would ever want to talk about. These are the kind of things that most people would be ashamed of. And yet Jesus acknowledges them. He says, this is my lineage. These are my family. These are the people that I'm proud of. I'm not ashamed of them. I'm proud to call them my own. They're stories of redemption. They're my trophies of grace. And do you know what that means for you? Verse 11, it says that Jesus is not ashamed to call you his own. It means that no matter what you've done in your past, his arms stand wide open to receive you, to forgive you, to redeem you, to make you his own, and to rejoice over you with singing. It doesn't matter what anyone else has said about you. You are defined by what he says about you, and he is proud to welcome you into his family and call you sister and brother. In him, you don't need to fear your future, and you don't need to worry about your past. And finally, let's look at Jesus, our priest who helps us. In verses 16 through 18, we're told that Jesus is our priest who helps us. The job of a priest, by the way, was to mediate between God and man. And that's what Jesus does for us. He advocates for us before the Father. He made a sacrifice to atone for our sins. The sacrifice was his own life. Furthermore, in his humanity, Jesus experienced temptation. You see, the fact that Jesus became fully human, it means that we have a God who can sympathize with us in our difficulties. He knows what it's like to be a teenager. He knows what it's like to be single. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be lonely. He knows what it's like to experience stress. He knows what it's like to experience suffering and pain and loss. He was tempted in every way that we are, and yet he was without sin. He knows what it's like to live this life and walk in our shoes. But even more importantly, it says there in verse 18 that he is here to actively help us 
when we are tempted, when we are facing difficulties. He is our priest who helps us. Imagine a conversation between an early Christian and his neighbor, right? His neighbor would say, oh, so you're, you're a Christian. That's interesting. I'm, I'm interested in religion. It's, it's all very interesting to me. I love the pageantry and the, and the sacrifices and the priests and the temples. So tell me about your religion. Where, where's your temple located? And the Christian would say, well, we don't have a temple, uh, actually. Christ is our temple. And they'd say, well, well, if you don't have a temple, well, then where do your priests operate? And we'd say, well, well, actually, Christ is our priest, we don't really have any, any priests. And you say, well, well, wait a second. If you don't have any priests, then how do you make sacrifices and, and make offerings to garner the favor of your, of your God and your deity? And they say, well, well, we don't have to because Jesus did that for us. He is our sacrifice. In fact, he is our God who has come to us. And the neighbor would say, well, this doesn't sound like any religion that I've ever heard of. And then the Christian would say, well, Exactly. Exactly, that's exactly right, because in Jesus Christ, God didn't give us a religion. He gave us a person who came to us to be our champion. He looked at us and he saw us in this hopeless situation and he came down to us to fight for us and through his death, he defeated death. He defeated the one who holds the power of death and he presented himself as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. And because of what he did, we can be saved and rescued. He's our champion. He's our hero. And that's why salvation is by grace. It's not what we do for God. It's what God has done for us. And I'll just finish with saying this. That's why at the very beginning of this chapter, here in chapter 2, the writer tells us this. He says in verses 1 and 3, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? In other words, all this information, all this stuff we're talking about today, about Jesus, who he is, what he's done, this isn't just information to fill your heads. It's not just stuff to jot down on a notebook. You see, this is stuff which should affect your life. He says, let us pay close attention to it, what we've heard, lest we drift away. He's painting a picture. Think about drifting. Think about being on a boat. Some of you, if you're on a paddleboard, think about if you've been on a surfboard. You know what it's like to drift if you don't have an anchor, over time, you drift from where you once were, where you wanted to be, and you just slowly drift away from there. Maybe that describes some of you and where you're at in your relationship with God. You've just slowly drifted over the years. You're not where you used to be. You used to be in a really good place, and you've drifted. But you know the thing about drifting is this. You know what you have to do in order to drift? Nothing. That's exactly it. In order to drift, you have to do Nothing. If you do nothing, you will drift. Think about being on a paddleboard, on a surfboard, on a boat. If you do nothing, you will not stay in one place. You will drift. The waves, the wind will carry you. And the same is true as life. It's the same is true of your relationship with God. And that principle can be applied in other ways as well. For those of you who have not yet put down your yes and said, yes, I am going to follow Jesus and be his disciple and receive and embrace the gospel. You know, in Acts chapter 16, there's this place where this man asked the apostle Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now think about it. What if we flip that question around and we ask the question, okay, well, what must I do to be lost? What must I do to be lost? Well, the answer would be nothing. If you do nothing, there you go. Do nothing about it and you'll be lost. You see, it's one thing to nod your head and say, yes, all these things about Jesus, all this theology, super good, awesome, true, love it. But it's another thing to put your trust in it. 
It's another thing to embrace it with your heart. It's another thing to believe that not only is it true, but it's true for me and to rely on it and to trust in it. And I'll just say this in closing. Notice he doesn't say, if you reject this salvation. He says, if you neglect this salvation. You see, to reject something is to say no. But to neglect something is to do nothing. It's to not say anything. But the end result is the same. And so I encourage you today, in light of this, may we be those who fix our eyes upon Jesus, our champion. And may we be those who give greater heed to who he is and what he's done. May we be those today who embrace the gospel in all of its richness and allow it to permeate and transform every area of our lives. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come before you in the name of Jesus, our champion. Thank you, Lord, that he has stood in our place and fought our battle, that battle which we were hopeless against. He saw our dire, dire situation. Lord, thank you that you came down to us in this great mystery and this great treasure, this truth of the incarnation, that you became one of us in order to save us. Lord, we pray that this wouldn't just be head knowledge for us, but that this would be something that we realize and that we know and true in our hearts. Lord, may we embrace it. And may we live in the light of it. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.